So I would like to speak some more tonight about about equanimity, about uh, equanimity and its poetry, and it's uh, striking that how much equanimity can uh, can kindle, can uh, generate poetic images like uh, I remember especially one by Meister Eckert he says um, this western contemplative he says the noble person runs constantly towards peace pretty strong To begin with, I would like to examine a little bit one side of uh, this area, which tends maybe a little bit to be neglected, and it's very important. I mean, the fact that equanimity means balance strength, a flexible strength, as we were saying, we were seeing the other night, and at the same time it implies sensitivity. Uh, Equanimity is transparency, it's receptivity, it's balance in its fullest sense, you know, emotional and cognitive. I think it's important that we remember this uh, side of of the coin. Um, Easily, uh, at least in in current understanding, one can have a very one-sided idea about equanimity, like like, uh, a one-sided kind of strength, like this this, being uh, rock-like, uh, strong in, in all situations, and kind of uh, always in control. Uh, makes me think sometimes of a, some spiritual version of John Wayne, <laughs> <laughs> in, in, in which this uh, aspect of, of uh, receptivity, of sensitivity, uh, gets lost, and it's especially important. Um, there is a famous uh, image in the yoga tradition uh, which says if you have a woolen thread and you touch a hand with this woolen thread uh, the um, the hand, the skin of the hand barely feels the woolen uh, thread but if you touch an eyeball with, with uh, the same woolen uh, thread uh, the eyeball will acutely feel the touch. And uh, those scriptures say a yogi who, who is making progress is like an eyeball. It's not like a hand. So uh, more sensitive, stronger, but more sensitive. You know, more, more flexible, 
and, and, and more sensitive at the same time. As a matter of fact, could we, could we conceive of compassion increasing and perceptiveness increasing without sensitivity increasing as well? Can we become more compassionate without becoming more sensitive? And there is no coincidence that very often equanimity is equated to the fertile ground out of which compassion and understanding arise, and without which there cannot be any compassion and understanding. So equanimity is balanced strength in, 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 and, and, and sensitivity uh, is a complex, complex dimension. Sometimes closing up to practice has to do with fear of this sensitivity, has to do with some hesitation when we start feeling that practice uh, brings in more sensitivity, and maybe we have some conditioned response to sensitivity because we are used only to a certain kind of sensitivity, um, because of which we got hurt, and so we, we, we can become uh, closed up and hesitant in, in, in regard to the practice. But usually what happens is that the balance and the sensitivity go hand in hand. So it is the experience of many meditators that uh, once you go beyond that fear, um, you come to appreciate uh, this kind of sensitivity. Although it can always imply some suffering, some new suffering, like becoming more sensitive to uh, other people's uh, pain is a form of suffering. But as Ajahn Chah would say, it's not the kind of suffering which brings only suffering. It's a kind of suffering which brings more spaciousness and ultimately liberation. If we keep all what we just said in mind, what can we say about equanimity and generally practice? In relationship to our relationship to other people. It is obvious that uh, if practice is a deep transformation process, it's got to have a strong impact on our relationships. Maybe a gradual one, but an important one. If nothing happens in the field of our relationship, well, we should revise our practice. <laughs> We are, we are holding something, we, 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 uh, we don't want to, to, to go into something. Uh, 
if we explore a little bit this field, we realize very easily that we divide into the people we know into categories, those we like and those we don't like. Now, um, the liking and the disliking in itself, the, 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 the pure liking and the pure disliking is not a problem. Uh, it is only natural and it is a, a, a form of discernment having likes and dislikes. So the problem is not the like or the dislike, but the extra charge which comes on top of the like, which is called attachment, and the extra charge, and a, often a pretty sticky one, which comes with the dislike, which is called aversion. So usually, when we like someone, we tend to get attached to that person. And when uh, we dislike someone, we tend to have hostility, aversion towards that person. Attachment in regards to another person prevents us from a totally different dimension, which is appreciation. Because, obviously, attachment imprisons both people, whereas appreciation nourishes both people. So these are polar opposites. When we, uh, when attachment follows like, what happens is that there are demands, right? And because of these demands, the area becomes highly charged. And the result is that we cannot go into real appreciation of the other person the way he or she is because of these demands. We all know the, you know, the crucial one. I like you, and I want you to like me, and if you don't like me, I won't like you anymore. <laughs> so with this kind of demand, this is just one. Uh, no wonder that we cannot go into appreciation of the other person because it's always like fire there and it's always uh, shaky. Uh, there's always either uh, uh, actual suffering or potential suffering. You know, demand, expectation has suffering we plug in uh, into potential suffering like that. So if we infuse some peace and awareness, balance, sensitivity, equanimity, we can slowly begin to turn from attachment into appreciation. 
you know, maybe we, our demands becomes more uh, uh, infused with mindfulness, we becomes more uh, relative, lighter, and some more appreciation can, can flow in, replacing uh, attachment, at least partially. And this is quite freeing. because allows this different dimension, which is appreciation. Sometimes, I think that if we were sincere, we should say, I like you very much, but I'm sorry, I am unable to appreciate you, because of, you know, what comes with the liking. So I cannot give you, and I cannot give myself, something very precious because of the attachment. On the other hand, when we dislike someone, um, we easily fall into some sort of aversion. And um, we, we, we take it personally. In other words, the, the amazing logic is if I dislike you, this means that you are against me. <laughs> it doesn't follow at all. <laughs> but that's the way we experience usually uh, things. Even, even, even small things. Suppose we are in front of someone who for some reason, has incredible uh, eating manners. <laughs> and, uh, and we don't like that. And, uh, and we can feel that this person is doing this against me. And maybe that person cares for us very much, but it doesn't matter for our ego. He or she is attacking us through that dislikable habit. <laughs> so what, what, what is the, uh, the consequence of, of this uh, 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 way of, of, of perceiving things? The same way uh, attachment prevents appreciation, uh, aversion in, in, in its many forms prevents respect. See, you can dislike someone, but you can have respect for that person because he or she happens to be a human being. So no matter what it is that you don't like, there is a possibility for respect. But this takes some equanimity, some balance, some awareness, some peace of heart. Otherwise, it's, you know, respect is just a word. But if we can tune in this m more sensitive energy, then we can, so to speak, operate at two levels. There is this level where we don't like, we don't agree with, uh, and whatever. And then there is a deeper level in which respect is available. And needless to say, respect can be the gate to appreciation of all those sides of that person 
we are usually blind to if aversion rules. But if aversion is replaced, at least in part, with respect, then this sensitivity coming from equanimity can open us up to the other sides of the person, ah, which are maybe excellent sides, or respect can dissolve a knot that we have, and we realize that that person has nothing whatsoever to be disliked. It was all in our mind. But we needed, you know, the worms and the gentleness of respect to dissolve this knot, this, this projection, basically. If appreciation and respect becomes more predominant in the place of attachment and aversion, then our, our uh, interpersonal life becomes different. You know, we bring a more even mind because, you know, we sail through uh, appreciation and respect. It is not a world of opposites like attachment and aversion. Although, you know, there can be still attachment and aversion, but this presence of more and more quantities, so to speak, of appreciation and respect makes uh, the landscape and, 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 uh, and the feeling very different. So the major contribution of, of equanimity to our interpersonal uh, relationship has very much to do with appreciation and with respect. See, if we think of an, if we try to imagine an innocent mind I think an innocent mind is a mind where likes and dislikes you know, just, just happen, just rise and, and pass away without, without leaving footprints. Uh, but we don't do like that. You know, we, we, uh, if we have a dislike, we build up around that dislike. We make it into something. We solidify it instead of just letting it go instead of dissolving it, emptying it. We do something out of it and we put it in our bag and we periodically take it out and <laughs> exercise our aversion and then we put it back. <laughs> That's what happens. Uh, an innocent mind, um, you know that image, the Indian image, it says that if you put a spoonful of salt in a small glass of water, then the water is going to be very bitter. But if you put the same spoonful of salt in a, in a large container, and you barely uh, uh, feel the salt. So an innocent mind is a, is a vast, is a vast mind. And uh, the salt of dislike uh, doesn't stay. It is not, that doesn't exist, because uh, the spoonful is put into that mind, but the reaction, the response, is very, very different.
difficult relationships. And I don't mean necessarily intimate relationships. Well, all of us, each of us, has a number of difficult persons, either because they are difficult, or because we are difficult, or because both <laughs> are difficult. Now, working with difficult relationships can become a very important part of our practice, especially if we be practicing for a while. We've heard many stories about how important it is that, uh, say, in a, in a spiritual circle there is some unpleasant person because da-da-da-da. But, uh, <laughs> I mean, now in the West, meditation has come of age, so the idea is to put all this into practice. So we don't need more stories about that, but we need doing it. And in order to do it, I think we need a couple of things in addition to uh, more or less seasoned practice. Uh, one thing is being realistic. Like if we have many difficult relationships, we cannot expect to work uh, with each of these relationships with the same intensity. So being realistic is really pick one. <laughs> and then stay with that one. And be, number two, very determined, very relentless with working with that one. See, in, in the Zen tradition, the bell goes off, not only at the end, but also at the beginning of the sitting. So, once we have decided to work with a difficult relationship, whenever we know that we're going to have a meeting with that person, and whenever the meeting begins, it's like the bell goes off, <laughs> the sitting begins. <laughs> I mean it. Relentlessly. Now, a lot of deepening of equanimity can happen through that, although difficult and unpleasant and frustrating. But the idea, like why, why I'm equating it to a sitting, that we stay, as we were seeing the other night, motionless within the frustration, alert and motionless, you know, sitting right in the middle of it every time it happens. You know. And if if, if we work on one, the, 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 the usefulness of choosing one, you know, it's that we can follow, you know, the, 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 the progress that we are making, that we can adjust uh, I also call it, I like to call it crocodile practice, <laughs> because in Indian Buddhism, they um, equate the, the, the practice of compassion with the crocodile, because supposedly the crocodile doesn't let go very easily of its prey. So compassion should be the same. Now, working with a difficult relationship should be the same. We 
you know, obviously, much would would very much prefer to let go of this relationship, of this you know work with this person. But if we are relentless, if we are crocodiles, then something good is going to to come out of this difficult task, challenging task, frustrating task. And at the same time, exciting. Not because of its content, but because the deepening of the quality of exploration and letting go and sensitivity which can come out of it. It takes discipline. It takes interest. But if we do it, and do it again, and do it again, and do it again, it works. If it doesn't work, it means simply that we are not doing it. Another help, I think, is if we use some of the seven factors of enlightenment. See, seven factors of enlightenment, usually we, we think of them as, as something associated with formal practice, uh, with, with intensive practice, which is, of course is true, but we can use uh, some of them in the thick of interpersonal relationships. Like take, for instance, concentration and, 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 and mindfulness. Say, basically, instead of going back to the breath, or even using the breath, you go back to Mary, to John, to whatever it is who is in front of you. Your mind goes away, and you go back to the person. Again and again, you make a point of doing this. It is beneficial in every respect. There's another factor, the factor of calmness, of restfulness. Now suppose someone uh, we appreciate. We can rest in this person. This person we appreciate can become a locus for our rest. Say, if we are not in the wavelength of appreciation, but rather in the wavelength of attachment, we cannot rest in the presence of this person we are attached to. Because there's always something that we want. Tell me some more. Do something. Are you sure you're listening? Um, give me something. It's a constant request. It's a constant demand. Either we say it or we think it, or we suppress it. That's something. But if instead of uh, attachment, there is appreciation, appreciation is a restful dimension. So we can use quote, unquote, that person we appreciate this as, as, as a factor for uh, developing our restfulness, our calmness. You know, the other person helping our calmness is often is the opposite. And the specific factor of equanimity 
in listening. We listen with no preference whether what we're listening to is interesting or boring or frivolous or deep. We keep listening, which doesn't mean that we're going to take whatever we uh, hear, but we exercise equanimous, equanimous listening. Again, you know, deepening our practice through the help of other people. Uh, the balanced energy of equanimity carrying into our relationship, making them a little bit easier, and then uh, being, having become easier, we can use the practice during the relationship, in, in the midst of it. And uh, in this uh, respect of the, the uh, uh, equanimous listening, television can be helpful. Uh, TV commercials. <laughs> Try <laughs> Try See, what happens is that it's automatic. We, we, we fall into you know, a mode of impatience, sometimes bordering with mild despair, you know, because <laughs> it's the seventh time that we hear something about tuna fish or whatever. <laughs> we can listen word by word, you know, unflinchingly. And that's, that's practicing. See, we, we fall into something like a, it's like a, you know, a black hole. It's like a, it's like something toxic. Why? Because this is irrelevant, this is uh, uh, time for relax, this is, uh, doesn't count, we are not in a meditation hall, we are not in the, you know, in the middle of an important relationship, this is only TV, but that's not the idea. There are no exceptions, you know. <laughs> the practice, you know, uh, becomes very beautiful when it is all pervasive. So, TV commercial, yes. <laughs> Yes. You know, the most unlikely uh, situation. Yeah. There. Using, using it. Chogan Trumpa would say, manure for the body, for, for the enlightenment. I'm not kidding. <laughs> Generally speaking, through the development of practice and the improvement because of the practice, because of the infusion of equanimity of our relationships, um, in addition to the specific areas that we mentioned, I would say that there is a, a, a general waking up to other people, I mean any, anyone, 
um, just feeling the presence of human beings whom we don't know, like in a bus, like in a, in a waiting room, more than in the past. You know, being more awake to the presence of human beings and enjoying often the presence of other people. As I said, in a bus, you know, those old hands resting in that person's lap, they look tender. That face, slightly absent-minded, whatever, you know, becoming more sensitive to the other person, to the other human being, enjoying, you know, receiving, basically. So this is one of the most moving aspects of the practice because so often as the years go by we tend to become hardened and hardened, harder and harder, more bitter, more intolerant of, 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 or cynical about other people. But this is the other way around through the practice. That one becomes more sensitive with just the presence of other people. Sometimes we, we we see the potential for this in, in, in a, a typical fact which happens in retreat. Suppose that we go to our uh, meditation cushion one morning and we see that uh, a person who was sitting next to us or close to us is not there anymore. This person has gone. And, uh, you know, we didn't know that person at all. We, we had never talked to that person. And yet, Something inside goes like, oh, too bad. He or she is not here anymore. You know, that empty, feels uh, funny, strange, that empty space. Like some, some warm energy isn't there anymore. I was always struck by this fact. It, it feels to me something primordial, like a, a primordial solidarity, primordial unity. Uh, before ego, you know, before the fall. <laughs> <laughs> because, you know, suppose that we had met that person, maybe, you know, the judging mind would have come in and, and, and uh, you know, separation maybe. But like that, it's still intact. It, it's, still, it's still there. And I think we can't recapture this, this feeling of, of, of primordial feeling of unity you know, beyond, beyond division and ego and preferences and judging through, through the practice. Really enjoying and receiving uh, from other people. A lot of emphasis is put on, on service uh, in, in spiritual circles, and, and rightly so. But our, if, if, we, if we realize that we are enjoying people more, then I think our motivation for service are, you know, more, more solid. Uh, sometimes we can go into service because we want to get rid, we want some relief from our sense of worthlessness, for instance, but that um, implies bitterness and that bitterness tends to spill over uh, towards other people. So service, uh, you know, gets a little bit tainted, so to speak. 
But if we uh, are enjoying a little bit more peaceful, then service uh, is more, remember that definition of, of, of um, equanimity, like a tranquil flow. Now, service can become more a tranquil flow, uh, although difficult at times, because there is this, uh, this union, this, this feeling of solidarity. Is enjoying, enjoying people, and and um, what can happen easily is that since we feel more at ease with people, strangers, we can not in an intruding way, but we can become to explore other people's lives, just asking questions being interested in other people, just because it's another person. Uh, and sometimes this, this new interest, this uh, new uh, desire for exploration, uh, sounds in, in, in sharp contrast with some old habit that we had of constantly, you know, um, uh, parading ourselves and our problems and, and, and this and that. This is, again, much more restful. Uh, now, if we go back to the, the central idea of equanimity and try to, to look at it um, from a slightly different angle, we can Remember, this is an aphorism which uh, comes from uh, um, a book called uh, The Secret Code of the Samurais, which being translated in many languages, I think is anything but secret this day. <laughs> it is said, one of the aphorisms is very beautiful. It says, give importance to every action. Now, how, how can we do that? Obviously, if we are in the grip of strong uh, self-fascination, of strong self-preoccupation, we're going to give importance to a few actions, and it would be structurally impossible to give importance to every action. But if we are looking for awareness and peace, if awareness and peace are our first priority, then every action is a locus for awareness and peace. Every action. And in this sense, every action becomes important. But if every action becomes important, then there's much more evenness and ease and equanimity in our lives. I remember Ramdas was very fond of uh, uh, quoting an early Christian father, Abba Doroteus, who was uh, famous for uh, putting things like this. Um, doing something is only one-eighth 
is only the eighth part. Doing it in peace and awareness, it's seven-eighths. Now, would you think it reasonable to give up seven-eighths for the sake of one-eighth? In other words, give total priority to peace and awareness. Even, you know, to the point of uh, not worrying about, about uh, that thing if it's going to be disruptive and, and uh, uh, harmful. And uh, uh, so peace and awareness as, as first priority. Of course, and now we, 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 we refer again to the uh, uh, work with other people. If our relationships are less of a problem, are less of a burden, then this search for awareness and peace, this giving importance to every action becomes a little bit more accessible if you are not haunted by other people. You know, Jean-Paul Sartre said, the hell is the other. <laughs> you know, we can, we can say many critical things about about his mind, but, <laughs> but if we are honest, we will admit that on some occasion, maybe on many occasions, we had exactly the same thought. Of course, it's not true. It's our reaction to others, which is hell. It's not the others. So what, that, that's the... the, the you know, the, the precise microscope of the Buddha. He, he said, you see, attachment, aversion, he said, is kinchana. Now, kinchana means something. And also he said, in the same, this is the middle length saying, in the same passage, he says, uh, and this something, is some uh, is is, is uh, creates limitation. Pamana karoti means creates measure, creates limitation, boundaries, limits. But it's not the person, it's not the thing, it's not the situation. Is our relation to all this is attachment, which is a thing, which is an obstruction which makes separation, restriction, measurement evidently there where in actuality there is no measure, there are no limits. Attachment or I, my set limits, division, separation. Remember William Blake, if the doors of perception were cleansed, everything would be or would appear the way it is, infinite, boundless, empty. So attachment, aversion, non-equanimity create the limitation, create the separation. 
see again, I think we can say that the more peace of the heart, the more awareness and equanimity are present in the background of our lives, the more whatever it is in front of us, people, things, becomes more alive. See, William James said, spirituality is more life. So equanimity, sensitivity and balanced energy makes for more life. real poetry. And um, talking about poetry, I think Rainer Maria Rilke puts it this way. In one poem in the Book of Hours, he's talking to God and he says, I'm close to you, very close. There is only a thin wall between you and me, just by accident. And it might happen that if you call or I call, the wall breaks down without any noise, without any sound. So may we all develop the precious gift of equanimity. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.